Good morning, New Life Manitou. My name's Jamie. Hi. Oh, thanks. Hi. Um, would you please stand for the scripture reading? Today's reading is from Psalms 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. And arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yeah? All right. Yes. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath, and he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This is the word of the Lord. Mm, thanks, Peter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, thank you that you're here in this place. Thank you that your spirit is building your church. We ask right now in these moments that you would build your church through your word, that your word would pierce us and slay us and resurrect us and that you would be alive in us. So get me out of the way, get my words that I've prepared out of the way if necessary, and come speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Yeah. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 You guys can be seated. <clears throat> There's a stand-up comedian named Jim Gaffigan. Any Jim Gaffigan fan? Yes, Jim Gaffigan in the house! Jim Gaffigan has uh, employed something of like this strange heckling voice uh, into his act. It's disappeared a little bit in recent recent, uh, years, but he employs this strange heckling voice uh, in some of his routines. Um, It's this voice that can kind of like embody whatever an audience member could be thinking at any point during his routine. And so he can like break into his routine at any point with this strange heckling voice. It's this nice tool. He can like break the ice a little bit with his audience. He can kind of make fun of his own appearance when he walks out. Oh, I didn't know he'd be so pale. It's kind of like with the audience. Or, or he can kind of build camaraderie and relationship with the audience by acknowledging like the silliness of his own set. Oh, he's doing bear jokes now? I didn't know that. He was going to be doing bear jokes. I was thinking of something better. Or my favorite is um, he can use this voice to kind of provide a surreal, absurd kind of commentary on, on a less than funny joke. Well, he says at one point, he says, you ever eat so much until you feel sick? Isn't that the best? <laughs> then you feel like a real American. Oh, that was strangely patriotic. It's like this absurd kind of commentary on the, on the joke, and it's not that funny of a joke. Anyway, um, it's, this, it's, it's clever because this strange heckling voice can say whatever the audience needs to say or wants to say, or perhaps even what the audience didn't know 
that they wanted to say. If we were to allow Jim Gaffigan's heckling voice to have um, a turn speaking today, especially after reading Psalm 110 um, with strange names like Melchizedek in verse four and people as a footstool in verse one and God crushing people, verses five and six, and piling up corpses, we might hear this voice say something like, should we be reading this in church? Oh, that's the Bible. I didn't see three easy steps for applying it to my life. How do I? <laughs> it's, it's the question that we didn't even know that we wanted to ask. What a strange psalm, Psalm 110. When we, tend to, uh, when we think about the psalms, um, when I think about the psalms, I tend to think about psalms like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or Psalm 91 that we heard last week, uh, under his wings will find refuge, or, or Psalm 136, his love endures forever. We don't unless you're a freak in the room, we don't tend to gravitate to Psalm 110, to a Psalm like 110, do we? If I got honest, my immediate reaction to Psalm 110 is, one, should we be reading this in church? This doesn't seem, some of it doesn't even seem quite Christian, you know what I mean, piling up there. And then two, um, what, what does this have to do with me? is kind of the thing that I'm left hanging with. Like, what does this have to do with, with me, with my stresses, with my, like, my anxieties, my, my relationships? The thing that I've brought into the room here on Sunday morning, this is kind of like this little oasis, but like, there are things going on out there, my burdens. What does this have to do with my real life? What does, what does this have to do with my story? You know what I mean? Um, a, a couple of brief re- reflections on those two questions, and then we'll um, come to the table this morning. First, um, should we even be reading this in church is my first question. Um, We find violence and gore and horror to match, you know, an episode of Game of Thrones, if you take the language literally. Um, It it hardly seems Christian in some ways, but here's an interesting factoid for you, an interesting little nugget. Um, Do you know what psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? You're not wrong, it's Psalm 111. No, it's Psalm 110. Uh, it's Psalm 110. It's, it's not only the most quoted psalm in, um, in the New Testament, it's the most quoted bit of the Old Testament, the he- entire Hebrew scriptures in the entire New Testament. Basically, anytime you hear the New Testament talk about Jesus resurrected from the dead and now being seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand hand of God, that's quoting, quoting or at least alluding to Psalm 110. And so on that first question, should we be reading this in church? The answer is yes, because the early church, the earliest followers of Jesus were absolutely obsessed with Psalm 110. They understood this psalm, Psalm 110, as like a mysterious sort of prophecy a prophecy about Messiah, 
generation after generation of people. I mean, just think about it. Kids and grandkids, and then the kids and the grandkids become the grandparents, and on and on. They would read this psalm, and at the beginning of this psalm, they would be wrestling with it and thinking about it year after year. This is a a psalm of David, is what it says here at the beginning of Psalm 110. And they wrestled with who in the world is David talking about? Who's David talking about? Who, who's David's Lord, lowercase l? Who is David's boss? Who's David's master that he's talking about? And what's going on? Because David's boss, David's Lord, David's master, verse one, is being asked to sit at the right hand of Yahweh. At the the right hand of the Lord, all capital letters, L-O-R. It doesn't say it up there, but that's that's okay. Like, look look up, look right here. It's because of font and styles and stuff like that in computers, and they don't respect the word of God enough. But look, look in your Bibles. You got all capital letters right there. It's Yahweh, little case Lord, is is being asked to sit next to all capital letters, the Lord. What? What is going, generation after generation of the Jewish people would read this story about an incredible someone who will rule the world. It's what they're reading in this. The early church ran with that. The early church read Psalm 110 and they're like, oh, this is what we've been thinking about for a long, 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 long time. We've been thinking about this. And they had a really good reason to consider this a prophecy about an incredible someone, about an anointed king coming, about an anointed Christ, the Messiah, because Jesus understood this psalm to be about him. Jesus himself understood this psalm to be about him. There's a story in Mark uh, 12, and it's also in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. Uh, Jesus quotes this psalm, we're not gonna read it, but Jesus quotes this psalm to all of uh, the religious experts of the day. Jesus brings this psalm to them and basically like raises the stakes about himself. It's like all this controversy swirling around Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, David calls the Messiah his Lord. What's that about, is what Jesus says to them. Maybe Messiah is a bigger deal than anyone ever dreamed of. And so whatever else we might say about Psalm 110, it's the most quoted psalm. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, and so it definitely belongs in the church. That we'll, we'll say that. It's definitely Christian because the Christ himself claims this psalm. He claims this about himself. And so we join the early church in thinking long and hard about 110. We join them this morning in thinking about it and trying to recognize that somehow all of the lyrics of this ancient song are about Jesus. Somehow, they're all about Jesus. This ancient psalm in veiled artistic metaphors, perhaps, and and poetic verse points us to Jesus, which is weird because the psalms, as I typically think about them, are about me most of the time. Most of the time, I think of the psalms as about me. They're about teaching me to pray. 
teaching me to get rid, and this is true. I'm not, I'm not knocking this. I'm not saying it's not true, but most of the time, this is the only way I think about the Psalms. The Psalms are teaching me stuff. They're teaching me how to pray, how to get real, how to bring my life before God, how to be totally transparent with God about the conditions on the ground in my life, teaching me how to lament. How to, how to bring my sorrow and my angst and my protest before God. How to bring my pain and my suffering and my doubt before God. They teach me how to be thankful. They do, don't they? Don't they? The Psalms, they teach us how to be thankful. They teach us how to recognize in the midst of our lamenting that the world's beautiful. The world is good and it's filled with good gifts that we have stopped recognizing that are from the Lord's hand. The Psalms teach us to worship. They teach us to worship. For sure, they teach me to worship, to celebrate the beauty and the goodness of God. I'm not particularly good at doing any of these things that the Psalm teaches me to do, but at least I understand what they're doing. They're about me. And they're teaching me how to bring my life before God. They're reaching deep inside of me into the deep, plain, ordinary, vanilla, everydayness of my life and pulling out something fresh and new, how to bring my life and my full humanity before God. This psalm surprises me. Surprises me because I largely don't factor into it. It's difficult because Psalm 110 doesn't talk very much about the people that we find most interesting in the world. Psalm 110 doesn't talk about us at all. It doesn't talk about us. I mean, it's all well and good that the early church understood this to be about Jesus, but what does that mean for me? Now we're at the second point. What does this mean for me? Because let's get real for just a second. Most of my life begins and ends with me. (laughs) The moment I get up in the morning to the time I hit the pillow in in the evening, it begins and ends with me, and that includes much of my spiritual life. If I got really honest right now, um, the Psalms teaching me how to lament, how to be thankful, how to worship, oh, that all works well and good for me because I'm in the middle of all of that. I'm in the middle of all of that, but what does it mean when a Psalm isn't about me? What's it mean when the psalm isn't about me? Over and over during the season, we've been saying that the psalms teach us the language of our faith. And most of the time, um, we understand that. We can grasp it um, because we understand that it's teaching us the language of faith. How does the language of faith apply to me, to my life, to my spiritual life, to my personal prayer time, whatever we want to call it? Me and God, that's what we are, we're thinking about. What does it mean when a psalm isn't about me? It's kind of the large question that I'm, I'm kind of left with. Um, well, if the psalms teach us anything, if Psalm 110 teaches us the language of our faith, um, and if Psalm 110 is definitely not about us, then at bare minimum, I think we should probably say, um, we should probably say it this way, life does not begin and end with me. It doesn't begin and end with me. Um, it's bigger than that. And that brings us to the second of all questions. Um, what does a Psalm not about me have to do with me? 
That's the thing that we'll lean into just for a couple of minutes here. What does a psalm not about me have to do with me? What's, what's it mean for my life? Like as I leave this oasis and go off to restaurant or park or climbing or hiking, whatever. What does a psalm not about me have to do with me? There's so much that we could say about Psalm 110. Um, it's a place where Bible nerds geek out a little bit and I could bring a lot of like trivia. <laughs> We're gonna talk about interesting things about the Bible. But I, I think uh, that would be kind of like I had to really like discipline myself. That's not, I think this morning we're gonna limit ourselves to uh, three things that this psalm um, not about us has to do with us. I think if we were to walk through the psalm we would see a throne we cannot claim, a world we cannot heal, and a victory we cannot lose. If you wanna, if you're taking notes and it's helpful to write, uh, it's a throne we cannot claim, a world we cannot heal, and a victory we cannot lose. Hopefully these images um, will help solidify the psalm in your mind just a little bit, and hopefully hopefully they're gonna give us good news about a psalm, not about us. Uh, so first, uh, verse one kind of gets us into, immediately plunges us into seeing a throne we cannot claim. Verse one is rather famous because it makes this declaration about Lord Yahweh has spoken to little Lord David's boss. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, the, the right hand of the king. The right hand of the king was this ancient image of authority and power. The right hand of the king had authority. The right hand of the king could do what he wanted. The right hand of the king gave orders and made decisions and got the choice parking spot. The, 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 the right hand of the king says jump and everybody says we're jumping, we're jumping, don't chop off our heads. That's the, that's the right hand of the king. We all want to be at the right hand of power. That's what we all want. Um, we all, we all want the throne. We all want the throne. My dad's a pastor, and I grew up in church. And I remember when I was probably nine or ten years old. You know, some of these kids running around. I was about their age, and I was attending vacation Bible school. You guys, yeah, that's right. I was attending vacation Bible school, and I desperately wanted in my little class. I desperately wanted to sit next to Natalie Thomas. <laughs> Natalie Thomas. The angel, the incarnate beauty of that third grader. If Natalie's <laughs> listening somewhere, please, Natalie. Peace be with you. I love you. Um, I desperately wanted to sit next to Natalie Thomas. I was absolutely smitten with this girl. Um, the world would certainly end in apocalyptic blood and fire if I could not sit next to her. And I was quite incensed. I was blood pounding in my ears angry that my poor vacation Bible school teacher had assigned seats at tables and had ignored my suggestion that I be seated next to my beloved. <laughs> she had completely ignored this. And so I've been thinking about this. My dad's the pastor. You know what I mean? My dad, like, I'm at the right hand of power somewhere <laughs> in the middle of all of this. I've been thinking about this. And then the moment presented itself, um, I could make my displeasure publicly known at some point in front of the rest of the class that I should be sitting at Natalie Thomas's table. And so... Um, 
my, uh, I, my teacher, she um, publicly rebutted me. She said, no, no, no. You're not going to be sitting at the, the seats are where they are, Brett. They're, they're just assigned. Um, she, I think she handled it with a degree of grace. And there was this moment when the airtight logic of it all just raced through my head. And I'd publicly said and expressed my displeasure at this. And she had publicly said, you're not sitting there. And I'd been thinking about this for a while. That's why I'm so mad and so... I may have to do what this teacher says, but this teacher reports to the children's minister, and the children's minister reports to the, who's above the, oh, that's right, it's my dad. And so there's this gross injustice taking place in my little world, and me not being given what I wanted, and uh, I knew I wasn't a grown-up, I knew I wasn't the king, I knew I, but I, was at the right hand of power. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so it only took a moment. It only took this brief moment. I think I was standing when it happened. It only took this brief moment when I threatened my teacher with, um, <laughs> with this. I pulled rank and I threatened my teacher and I said, you need to do what I say because my dad's the pastor. <laughs> it only took a moment to say that and then it took several minutes to walk down the hall with her and to be escorted to my dad's office and to sit in my dad's office and poor Brett I mean I I mean I was I was repentant way before my dad got in there because I think they let me sit in there like 20 minutes or something and I was thinking about like is my dad going to lose his job like is this like a what's going to happen it was like I was pretty broken by the time my dad got in there anyway there was a spirit at work in me even at a long, young age mortifying me or vivifying me. Anyway, um, and so like, uh, this is the silly pulling rank with a teacher. The problem is I think that's the way we live most of our lives. I think that's the way we live. We pull rank somewhere in the midst of all of us. We're like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be happening. We're frustrated that life isn't working out the way we want, the way we expect, the way we deserve, if we got really honest about it. This isn't the, we're frustrated, we're confused, we're disoriented, we're like, what's going on? Oftentimes, we find ourselves blood pounding in our ears, angry about it. We're really angry about it. Um, We're at the center of the world, but nobody seems to recognize that we're at the center of the world. Nobody is orbiting around us the way that they should. We are the main character of this world, and everyone, why isn't it working out better for us than all this? I'm the main character. I shouldn't be happening. These things shouldn't be happening to me. I shouldn't be forgotten. I shouldn't be experiencing loneliness. I sh- it, shouldn't, it should be working out better. We think the throne is ours. We think the throne is ours. Very often our lives are spent in frustration and anger because we're convinced that we're in a story primarily about us. Primarily about us, that we're the hero. But the good news is that the psalm is not about us. The earliest church said, you wanna know some really good news, brothers and sisters. Do you want water for your soul? You're not the hero. You're not the center. You're not 
the main character. You're not at the right hand of power. We're part of someone else's story. We're part of someone else's story. They're an incredible someone else, someone who actually has all the power in the universe and who doesn't use it for himself. Jesus uses all of his power to give himself away to others. And truest life, deepest freedom is found when we lose our lives in this life, when we lose our story in his story. So um, if things aren't working out for you right now, and some of you, like that thing, it just pops in your head, and it's not, and it hasn't been working for a while, if things aren't working out for us right now, if things aren't falling into place like they should, if the deepest levels of reality are not bending to your will, don't be discouraged. Don't be angry. Don't despair. You're not on the throne. You're not on the throne. You weren't made for the throne. We could say it this way. Um, We find freedom off the throne. We find freedom off the throne. This is fantastic news for all of us, (laughs) for all of us who think we're the main character, that everything rides on us. You're not the center. You're not on the throne. The throne isn't ours, and so you can go and play in the courtyards. You can, you can go, go, be free, be free, frolic. You don't have to be the center of attention. You don't have to be the center of the conversation. You don't have to have the drama swirling around you. You don't have to be the center of the solution. You don't have to be in control. Not everything is about you. Not everything's about you, and that means Not everything depends on you. Not everything depends on you. Go play in the courtyards. The throne isn't yours. The weight of the world is not yours to bear. You're invited to recognize that your story has been made part of another story, bigger and better and more beautiful than yours on on your own, bigger than your circumstances at the moment. It's bigger than the shame and the secrets you carry right now, bigger than your deepest regret bigger than that worst mistake, you're invited to believe the gospel this morning, that the throne isn't yours, but the one on the throne says you are loved just as you are. Verse four draws us deeper into this reality that the throne isn't ours because verse four is where we recognize a world we can't heal. There's a tremendous freedom in recognizing that that just as the throne isn't ours, neither is the responsibility of saving the world or healing every wound that you may see around you or fixing every problem that you see in the world. That's someone else's burden to bear too. That's the job in the ancient world. That's um, something of the job of the priest. In the ancient world, the priest 
is the one who bridges the gap between God and the people. He's the one, priests would um, bring the people's sin and brokenness to God and they would bring God's wholeness and shalom to the people. Priests are the ones bridging the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. Priests are the ones (laughs) healing the fracture, bringing things back into order. The voice of David here in Psalm 110 is talking to his boss, his Lord, his, his master, the king's king is who is being addressed and says, whoever this incredible someone is who sits on the throne, they're also a priest standing in the gap, which is unusual because the two don't usually go together. It's like the president sitting on the Supreme Court just isn't done. <laughs> you, you usually don't have both. Um, but evidently this person in Psalm 110 can This person rules the people, but this person also heals the people. That's a clue that this is no ordinary priest. They're both. Whoever's phone that was. (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. Um, Anyway. Um, It's a clue that they're no ordinary priest because they're both king and priest. But it also says, really strange, we're not spending much time on it, even though we could turn it out. Um, They're a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's like this mysterious figure who shows up in literally one verse of the Bible. If you've never heard of him, if you lost in Trivial Pursuit, it's, it's okay, you missed that verse. Um, he's, he's this mysterious figure who shows up in one verse in Genesis 14. He's some sort of priest king who just shows up in the story. He just pops up out of nowhere, and then he, he blesses Abraham. He blesses the Jewish father of the faith, and then he like drops a smoke bomb, Batman style, and boom, Melchizedek's gone. It's like he's just gone. He's there, and then he's gone. He's like this mysterious figure that like could just show up anytime, like boom, gone. He's doing... And um, the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews actually spends a couple of chapters talking about Melchizedek. He makes a really big deal about like this one guy. He says that in Jesus of Nazareth, we have like the ultimate priest who has appeared and knocks our socks off in surprise about how incredible he is and who truly is a priest forever. The early church was proclaiming that Jesus has plunged headlong into death and burst out the other side into a new mode of existence. It's what Jesus has done. He's literally a priest forever. If you want to call it in the order of Melchizedek, that's fine. That's what a Jewish nerd in the first century would do. Um, What does this mean for us, though, is the question. Well, as I was reflecting on it, you know who's usually trying to bridge the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be? I usually don't let Jesus do that. It's usually me. And it's usually ripping me apart. I can't bridge the gap. There is someone who bears the weight of bridging the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. If you've ever looked at your inner world, your inner world, at like your sin, at your brokenness, at your anger, at your shame, at your worst parts, and despairingly thought, I can't fix this. Take courage, you can't. Take courage, you can't, and you don't have to. 
and you don't have to. We can't save ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. There's someone else who bears that weight. This psalm isn't about us. Jesus is priest forever, and he loves healing what is broken. If you've ever looked at the world around you, at broken relationships, that family member, at broken bodies, that diagnosis that just isn't going away, at broken systems of injustice, millennials, that are just depleting you of like, oh, I wish somebody would fix this thing, at the endless problems to be solved at the world, and thought despairingly, I can't possibly bridge the gap between how things are and how they should be. I can't fix this world, you're right, you can't, you can't heal the world, and you don't have to, you can rest, this psalm isn't about you, Jesus is the priest who heals this world, he's already at work doing it, and he will finish the job one day both the world around us and the world within us. Trust him this morning. Ask him to heal. Ask him to to bring you along and help him with that, but trust him, rest in that. And that brings us to verses five through seven where we see a victory we can't lose. The, The psalm gives us a hero of this world who simultaneously, he's a king, verse one, and a priest, verse four, but he's also this warrior. If you wanna hang your hats on those pictures, you can too. He's a king, a priest, and a warrior. There's tons of like military imagery in this psalm. It gets rather graphic before the psalms end with rulers, literally in the Hebrew it says heads. Some translations, heads being crushed, bodies being piled up. All these images are um, nomenclature of the day. They're, they're, They're cultural images pointing us towards a victory, a security, a peace. He will crush heads, verse five. He will judge the nations, verse seven, verse, or verse six. In verse seven, it says, he will drink from a brook along the way and he will lift his head high. And the psalm just like ends there. It's like cut to the credits. It's like, I thought it's a little like um, at the end of like a Marvel movie. It's a little like right before the movie's uh, ends. It's a little like, Captain America's cracking his knuckles right before, and then it cuts to, and then it cuts to the credits. Like you know that whatever is coming, he can handle it. Whatever is coming, like he's got it. This warrior is rested and ready. I've read this psalm before, and I've really wished that it ended with him leading me to drink from a brook or raising my head high. But alas, this psalm is not about me. It's about him. It's about he. It's, it's tough to tell um, who this he is at the end of the psalm. It, it's tough to tell where the Messiah ends and where God begins. So who is this he? Which Lord are, is being talked about? The language is vague in the Hebrew. Is it David's boss? Is it the Messiah? Or is it Yahweh himself? Is it God? To which the early church would say, yes, 
Yes, they're the same person. The Lord has come in the flesh. The early church kept going on about Psalm 110 because suddenly in Jesus, we have a real, touchable, knowable person in whom God has made himself entirely known. And the life of Jesus pushes back against Psalm 110 just a little bit. The life of Jesus pushes back just a little bit. The life of Jesus shows us a very different Messiah, a very different God, a very different warrior than anything anyone ever expected. If you started with this Psalm, I think you'd be really hard pressed to ever arrive at the cross. You can only, in the light of the cross, make light, make sense of this psalm. The psalm is right. God's warrior has won the battle. It just looked nothing like anyone ever expected. It's only through the cross that we can see what his warrior victory actually looks like. Instead of corpses being piled up by the Messiah, we have curses being piled up on the Messiah. Instead of a warrior killing their enemies, we find a true and better warrior dying for their enemies. From Psalm 110, we learn that God has won and will win the day against every enemy, against every darkness, but it is from the life of Jesus that we learn how God wins the day. And it is by love. It is by love. It is by self-giving, radically forgiving, enemy-embracing love. Jesus, uh, you can throw that verse up. Jesus wasn't blowing smoke when he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you may be like God, when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he's not calling us to some standard above God. He's calling us to what God is always like. One of the earliest Christian leaders, a guy named Paul, makes it clear that God does exactly like this. God loves his enemies. Paul writes in Romans 5, he says that while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, while I was your foe, still your love fought for me. The God, God the Son's dying for us while we are his enemy. That's how God wins the battle. We could say it this way, God always wins by love. God always wins and the win is always by love. Not by crushing enemies, not by dying, not, not, by, um, not by crushing enemies, but by dying for enemies and calling them friends, calling them disciples. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you need to hear that. You need to hear that God's good. You need to hear that God is love. You need to hear that God loves you. He does. He loves you. Beneath it all, beneath the circumstances of your life that look awful, but beneath all of the like Bible passages that you like can't make sense of and that are like so confusing and that like what does that even mean? Beneath what happened and what you can't forgive God for. Beneath it all, God is good. 
Beneath it all, God is good. Jesus, crucified and risen. Look at that. Look at that again and again. Jesus, crucified and risen, shows us that God loves you. Jesus, crucified and risen, makes sense of your life. That's the key to unlock your life. And God is intent on you and everyone that you love being fully alive, fully free, fully human. God will win the day. Trust that. God will win the day and he will win by love. So this morning as we're um, getting ready to come to the table, I think the invitation of Psalm 110 this morning is an invitation to you, to us, to um, trust a victory that isn't ours and to rest. May the Spirit continually remind you that your life does not begin or end with you. May you remember that your story is caught up in the story of Jesus. May you believe that this morning. Maybe for the first time, may you believe the gospel. May Jesus set you free from a life all about you, from the, from the wounds that you cannot heal, and may Jesus assure you that his love will win the day. May you recognize how beautiful it is when the psalm is not about you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.